0: Well, as I've already kind of mentioned, this past week, Meg and I enjoyed some time away. Really, it was a twentieth uh, anniversary trip, and it' was the first time that we had ever gone on a vacation, just the two of us uh, since our honeymoon. And so much thanks to the session uh, for that that trip. And, you know, I'm just going to take a moment to say I can't tell you how appreciative of this church I really am. You know, being a, a pastor, uh, is incredibly stressful, though it doesn't always appear that way to outsiders and sometimes insiders too. I mean, in fact, someone once commented uh, to Meg, straight face, that it must be nice that your husband doesn't work very much. <laughs> well, so I, you know, I joke. Yeah, I just work an hour a week, basically on Sundays. And the rest of the week, there it is. I, I think y'all know better. And th- this church has been nothing but supportive and kind uh, to my family over these, these last eight years and change. And maybe especially over the last three years with all the stuff that has been happening with, you know, the pandemic and just the way politics works, uh, you know, social media, all of it. And it's, I can't tell you what a treasure it is to be able, uh, to pursue my marriage and pursue my sons in this town among this, this people. You know not once uh, have I ever felt threatened not once has there been a a political campaign uh, against me or against some decision uh, that was made not once have I been dragged through the mud on social media and lots of pastors I personally know endure uh, that sort of thing on the regular and I I've endured endured that kind of thing in previous churches I've served in but not here. Thank you for that. You know, I've known right now many pastors who are currently just burned out. Uh, Many who have, over the last three years, just quit the ministry because they just couldn't take it anymore. And many who I know right now who have said to their sessions or to their churches, if I don't take a sabbatical, I'm not going to make it. And my marriage isn't going to make it or my kids aren't going to make it. And while I'm tired, uh, the school year is is pretty busy for me, and and I get to recover in the the summer, I, I can't tell you how content I am to be in this church and to be among you. And moments like this past week are such a blessing to my family and to me and to my soul. So thank you. I am so grateful for this body of believers. I wouldn't trade you for anything. Well, that said, we've been in the back half of the book of John really since the fall. We started in John chapter 13 back in September. And for the remainder of the series, we're going to be looking at John's account of the resurrection, which begins in John chapter 20. So this week, we're just looking at the first 10 verses of John chapter 20. And it's, it is fascinating and really fascinating. Rich passage, and and I'm certain I'm not going to be able to do it full justice this week, so I'm probably going to have to tag on to it next week, which we're going to be looking at also another fascinating and really rich passage, too. But this week, we're looking at John chapter 20, and we're going to pick it up with verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and he believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then The disciples went back to their homes. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let me uh, pray for us as we enter into this time with His word. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this beautiful account of the resurrection, how theological it is, how deep it is. it's of course historical, but it makes so many rich connections with the Old Testament. So I pray. Lord, in this time that we'd see those connections, that this would be a great time of meditating on your word and how rich it is because of how rich you are. Lord, you are glorious. You are beautiful. And I pray that we would come away from this time just seeing a little glimpse of that and being deepened by that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we read in verse 1 that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. And Mary was one of the four women listed as witnesses to Jesus' death in John 19, 25. And here she has returned to the tomb. John tells us that it was the first day of the week and he emphasizes that it was early morning and still dark. In fact, all four gospels emphasize the same thing. And what's more, all four gospels, instead of emphasizing that it was the third day, like what we might expect given Jesus' words that he'd be raised on the third day. They all emphasize that it was the first day of the week. Their emphasis on the first day of the week, I think, tells us, as Paul speaks of it, that with his resurrection, Jesus ushered in the new creation. It's a new creation week founded on Jesus' resurrection. So just as we are meant to read, for example, Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount in light of the giving of the law with Moses on Mount Sinai, or see uh, Jesus' death on Golgotha in light of the Passover in Egypt as well as Gen- the promise made in Genesis 3. So I think we're meant to see Jesus' resurrection in light of the days of creation of Genesis 6. You see, Jesus' resurrection. Is the first fruits. It is the first day of the new creation, the new age. That's why Paul says in Romans 8 that all of creation is waiting like a mother in labor for the full redemption that began at this moment. That means then that Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection does not merely affect our souls. Of course, it affects our souls, but it, it affects actually every last inch of creation. And as an aside, this is also why the Christian practice since the very beginning has been to celebrate the Sabbath on Sundays, which is the first day of the week, instead of Saturdays, like the Jewish tradition, which is the last day of the week. So our worship and rest is rightly reordered, the church understood this, to the resurrection of Jesus and the new creation. So what the old Sabbath had anticipated and look forward to has now come to fruition and fulfillment in Jesus. And this is why Paul rightly says we are new creation and we are living in the new age even as the the present evil darkness is still here. Now, one of the things I love about the Bible, getting back to Mary, is that it does not shy away from uncomfortable details that might not stand up to whatever counts as the standards of rationality of whatever time period the, the, the body of Christ finds itself. So, the first people to arrive at the tomb are not men. They are not Jesus' official set-apart disciples. No, it's the women who witnessed Him die who show up first. None of His disciples, except for John, were at the cross either, which is, by the way, a pretty bad look for His disciples. And in the ancient world, and this is not so much true in Judaism, but in the ancient world, in the wider Gentile world, women were not taken seriously as witnesses. In the Old Testament, in Judaism, they were, but not in the wider Gentile world. Yet here, none of the gospels shy away from saying that the first witnesses to the empty tomb were women. And in God's view, women are every bit as much image bearers as men, and we we clearly see their courage and their faithfulness of these women on display at the cross. And this is a side point, but you know, I think passages like this one then give credence to the authenticity of the Bible because none of the Gospel writers tried to embellish or make their accounts more relevant uh, to prevailing cultural standards of the times. I mean, after all, none of the disciples ever, none of them ever come across as heroes. Or or perfect examples of faithfulness. I mean far from it. In fact, Peter, who is arguably the leader of the disciples, or at least the spokesperson for the disciples, comes off maybe the worst of them all. And we in fact see that in our passage today. And we know from the other gospels that Mary was not the only woman at the tomb, but John emphasizes her just as he does with other people throughout his gospel account. He he uses her really as a representative as someone through whom to see the action of the story. And we read in verse 2 that she ran and found Peter and in turn John. And I think the insinuation here is that the two men were not together. They weren't together. Disciples at this point, and this will change, but at this point they were scattered. And Mary says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid him. So even though Mary is clearly devoted to Jesus. And to be devoted to him now that he's dead is a big deal. Though she's clearly devoted to Jesus, her first thought is not resurrection. It's that his body had been stolen. And Jesus had openly taught that he would be crucified and would die and be resurrected. But even when staring inside an empty tomb, it's a difficult doctrine to believe. But as Paul argues in in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus was not raised literally and physically from the dead, then Christianity is a lie. And in turn, that means that Jesus was a fraud. And what we call Scripture is nothing more than a myth. And all we have to look forward to is death. But John's point is, of course, no, no, no. He was raised. He was raised. And that's what we're, we're reading about right now. Well, if we keep going with verses 3 through 8, John and Peter are contrasted in their reaction to Mary's news. And this continues a contrast between these two men that began with chapter 13. It will actually continue throughout the rest of the book. See, Peter, as I've already mentioned, was a spokesman for the disciples. And that, that continues into the book of Acts. And, in fact, you can see him. You know, making pretty incredible sermons early in the book of Acts. But John was the beloved disciple, and that keeps being hammered home. The one whom Jesus loved, and he clearly had a closer relationship to Jesus, which Peter seems at points to have been jealous of. Peter made bold claims that he would die for Jesus, but unlike Peter, John actually followed Jesus to the cross and never denied him. And here, John outran Peter to the tomb, then took in the scene, and he believed while Peter lagged behind, burst in the tomb after John. And we can imagine that he just shoved past John, who was standing in the entrance, and then Peter left without believing. So there's actually a lot of debate over what John is after with all these comparisons. So is he, is he trying to make Peter look bad? Uh, was, he, was he owning Peter's uh, sprinting skills? Because he straight up says, I outran him, y'all. I outran him. Or, or, or given that, that, that John's uh, gospel uh, was written after the gospel of Mark, and Peter stands behind the gospel of Mark, if you didn't know that, Mark was really his kind of his administrator or his secretary? Was John indicating to the early Christians that Peter was not the only authoritative source? So so scholars debate all this stuff. But I think what's really in view is what an ideal disciple looks like. What an ideal disciple looks like. And it's clear that John's heart was set on Jesus. John remained faithful to Jesus and followed him all the way to the cross. And John listened to Jesus, and at his tomb, he believed in Jesus even when he really didn't understand what was happening by his own admission. And Peter, I think, is much more like many of us. He was double hearted, he was easily spooked, easily swayed, capable of both bold claims of of faith and then shameful denials. John was not perfect, and that's not what he's trying to present at all. It's rather that his heart was set on Jesus, and that's what made him an ideal disciple. It's why one of the core themes of 1 John, which he wrote, is that Christians are defined by God's love for them, and in turn their love for God and for each other. In fact, he just it's just like a drumbeat through there where he talks about God's love for his people and then what it looks like to respond to that. Even so, we see hope for Peter in this too. We see hope for Peter in this whole scene. So despite his denial, he's not like a Judas. Despite his denial, he's still a disciple. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, Peter will be restored by Jesus or excuse me, to Jesus, by Jesus. So we can already see repentance at work with Peter in this passage because like the prodigal son, he wants to go home. He wants to return to Jesus. He wants to find life with Jesus and can't help but go and see the tomb. It's why the confession of sin, for example, that we've already done is always... It is always an invitation from God to his people to return to him. It's always that. You may come back. Return home to your God. Well, with verses 5 through 8, we read that John and Peter look in the tomb and they see the linen cloths used to wrap Jesus' body laying there with special focus in the text being given to the face cloth. That, or the headcloth that was folded up in a place by itself. And I think John wants us to see uh, two things here. First, John obviously is reporting uh, the facts of the scene and those facts indicate that Jesus' body was not stolen. There was a big fear uh, going into this uh, by the Jewish authorities among others and this of course is what Mary assumes. This is why the Jewish authorities uh, placed guards uh, at the tomb Roman guards to try and sh- ensure that no one would be able to steal the body and say he was resurrected. That was a big fear for them. Uh, and John is saying nope the body was not stolen and it's you know if you think through the, the details it's highly unlikely that someone would first unwrap the dead body uh, leaving the wrappings in what appeared to be an orderly pile and then take off with the naked body. That No one's going to do that. If they're going to steal the body they're just going to take it and run. And John thinks the evidence points to Jesus unwrapping himself. And in turn, that means he was raised from the dead, just as he said he would be. And John didn't quite understand that in the moment, but he did believe that Jesus was alive. But like many things in John's account, I think he wants us to make deeper connection between Jesus' life and what has come before in the Old Testament. I mean, remember, and we've been walking through this now for, for weeks, dealing with his, his arrest and his death, his crucifixion. One of the key things that John repeats in the previous chapter and throughout his gospel is that Jesus completes Scripture. And so that doesn't just mean that Scripture is fulfilled in him as if an event was predicted and then he, he did it. No, all of its meaning, every last bit of it, finds its completion in Jesus because he is the word of God. So everything that that came before him was in anticipation of him and in these moments. So one important way of understanding Jesus, and I've already mentioned this, is that he is a new and better Moses. Now, Moses uh, was a unique character in the Old Testament, really functioning as a prophet, priest, and a king. That's pretty unique in the Old Testament. David is like that, Solomon a little bit. And and like Jesus, he also fits in with the pattern of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, offering himself up for the atonement of his people. And we see this clearly in the foundational, really seminal event of Exodus 32 through 34 and the golden calf. And I think it's helpful to read Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection In light of that event. So if you remember, Moses was on top of Sinai in God's uh, presence. And there's lightning and there's thunder and, and, and just, you know, all the glory of God. And he's receiving the law from God. In the meantime, Israel was in the valley below. And despite everything they could see going on up there, they were growing impatient. So they approached Aaron and they asked him to make... A God they could worship, a God that was more malleable to what they they wanted the true God to do for them. And so Aaron took the gold that God had given them off of the Egyptians. So if you remember that, they they left uh, Egypt with all kinds of gold and treasure that the Egyptians were like, here, you take it, just go. So these are really gifts from God. So they took these gifts from God. They gave them uh, to, to Aaron. And he fashioned it into a golden bowl, and he said, These are the gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So this is not merely idolatry, as if there is anything as mere idolatry. This is adultery. Moses was on top of Sinai, finalizing the terms of the marriage between God and his people, who, by the way, had just said, I do, to him. But now they've chased after another lover from her time as slaves in Egypt. In fact, that, that golden bull was a, a pretty common uh, image of, of worship in, in Egypt. And this is really equivalent of a bride sleeping with a past abusive lover on her wedding day. That's what's in view. And so God, of course, knows exactly what's happened, and he tells Moses about it. And Moses, in turn, implores God not to destroy Israel and goes down and stops the whole awful scene. Now the next day, Moses says to Israel, and this is huge, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. I will go up to the mountain, right? We've already seen that with Jesus going up to the mountain to die. I will go up uh, to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And this is remarkable. Moses, because of Israel's horrible infidelity against God, was going to offer himself for the sins of his people. So Moses goes up the mountain to God and says, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sins, and he just kind of leaves it hanging, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. So Moses asked God to forgive Israel, but if he will not, To please take his life in payment. And what's so striking is that Moses is willing to endure damnation for the sake of his people. Why? Because he wants his people to have God's presence and favor forever. So even though Moses cannot atone for his people, still he is the model that looks forward to Jesus and this moment. Though God did not accept Moses as an atonement, throughout chapter 33 of of Exodus, Moses, he continues. He does not stop. He continues to intercede for the people. And what is evident is that Moses' heart is set fully on God. And in turn, he finds favor in God's sight. So once Moses figures out that he enjoys God's favor, he asks to take in even more of God's glory. It's like the famous line from Psalm 84. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So the basic point is the more you get to know God, the more you want to be in his presence and take in his glory. That's why Jesus teaches, whatever your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. So make God your treasure. That's Moses. But Moses doesn't just want to enjoy and take in God's glory for himself. He begs God not to leave this people so that they, they might continue to enjoy his presence and glory too. And Moses knows, like the psalmist knows, that there is no life apart from this God. And were God to leave them, which is what God had threatened to do because they broke the covenant, these people, like the world, would surely die. So this pleases God, and he tells Moses that he will get to experience even more of God's glory. But he can't take it in fully because that would kill him. So that leads to the famous scene of of chapter 34 where we get the line repeated throughout Scripture after this that God is a God full of steadfast, loving kindness. It's where that comes from, where Moses is hidden in the cleft of the rock and gets to see more of God's glory but not his full glory. So you ought to be able to, hopefully, as I am walking through this, start to see connections of Moses between Moses' life and Jesus' life. And all, all throughout the gospel, you can see the, these connections being made. But here's where the connection with this, this notion of the head covering and the veil happens in our passage. So after re-upping the covenant with God, that is, the marriage is saved... Moses has successfully interceded for Israel. Moses comes back down the mountain, and he's radiating with God's glory. And the way the Hebrew describes this is weird. It's so weird and fascinating. It's literally that God's glory came off of Moses' face like horns, as in like horns are growing out of his head is, is kind of how the, the Hebrew describes it. And you can actually, I encourage you to go do it. You can actually Google artwork from the medieval period where Moses is depicted with horns because of passages like this one. And it's a strange way of describing the scene and the way Tim Mackey explains it is we're meant to see Moses as an atoning sacrifice, almost like a ram or a goat, as one who's willing to give his life for the sake of his people as one who anticipated the suffering servant of isaiah 53 who is now radiating with god's glory you see in his intercession in his love for god and his people in his desire to atone for his people god glorifies him in this radiating Glory coming off of Moses, you would think people would be overwhelmed with, like, look at that. But instead, they're terrified. They're terrified. So much so that Moses covered his head with a veil. And when Moses would go in to speak with God in the tabernacle, he'd remove the veil. But when he came back out to the people, he would put the veil back on. So, in other words, with Moses, the glory of God was veiled. It was veiled from the people. But with Jesus, God's glory is now on full display. Now think back to what John says about Jesus in chapter 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's just like how throughout the Gospels, you get peaks of Jesus' glory, but with his resurrection, it is now on full display, perhaps most famously with Paul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. So where Moses desired to atone for his people but could not, Jesus could atone and gave his life for his people. What was formerly veiled from God's people with Moses has now been fully unveiled in Jesus. What formerly kept God's people at a distance out of fear Has now brought God's people close to God with joy. So, what Moses wanted for his people, you know, for God to dwell with and amongst his people, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, who is the true temple, has permanently accomplished this through his resurrection, giving us life forever with God where we can never break the covenant again. And this is exactly Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 where he points to this moment with Moses and puts it in light of Christ. Because of the giving of the Spirit, we now, even in this life, behold God's glory better even than Moses with unveiled faces. It's incredible when you really start to make the connections. And John ends uh, the passage by telling us a few things. He tells us that he believed with the implication that, that Peter and the women did not yet believe, even as none of them, including John himself, really understood what was happening and what he was really witnessing. And then the two disciples went home. It's unbelievable. They'd take all this in and just go home. That's how so often life works. You may experience something dramatic, and then what do you do? You go home. And they're left there to to think about it and to meditate on what happened. But not Mary. She will be the first to encounter the risen Jesus. And we'll take that up next week because that's a fascinating passage too. So we go and, and we find that John believed that Jesus was alive, but he didn't yet understand the significance of the events, let alone the connections with the Old Testament. And I think it took him a long time to see just how much Jesus completed Scripture. And, you know, his gospel actually reflects that. You know it's it's uh, both in it's it being written later than the other Gospels but also in how differently it's composed it just is I was telling this to the session if you read John it's very different in tone and feel than Matthew Mark and Luke I mean it's poetic and it's it's a historical account to be sure but it's not merely a historical account it's a theological account that wants us to make it invites us to make theological connections. And the Christian life is like this too. Your life is not merely one event after another. It has theological meaning and purpose. Now of course we can't always see that. And it often feels like it's just one random event after another. Though like Job, you know, we often can't see the meaning of, of certain events, why things happened, why we had to endure something, why did I lose this person, all these kinds of questions that we face and are hard. Well, in the fullness of time, when we are gathered face-to-face with our God and we, and we behold His glory completely unafraid, we will see it. We will see it. You see, the Christian life is one of slow growth and patience. It's slow growth. There's no such thing as five easy steps to enlightenment with God or ten foolproof ways to totally master the Bible. No, it doesn't work like that. It takes time to grow in your faith. It takes time, a long time to grow in your devotion to God and your knowledge of the Lord. So, you know, love and knowledge of God, like every other relationship there is, it's just not instant. It's just not. You know, in some circles what is, is prized, and you can see this in our town, what, what's prized is sort of an anti intellectual, I don't know nothing, I just have faith sort of mindset. And you know what? Nowhere in scripture is that recommended ever. I mean, the Proverbs in the book of Ecclesiastes stands against that and says, nope, that's not the, the, where you should be. Neither is, you know, the emotive, kind of romanticized Jesus is my boyfriend view. That's not in scripture either. That's just, I think, reveling in immaturity. You know, to use Paul's terms, it'd be like a grown man who preferred baby food to steaks or maybe bad 80s power ballads to the Psalms. I think in our circles, There's the expectation that we will have exhaustive, comprehensive knowledge of the Bible and doctrine with very little devotion, which sometimes is expressed in arrogance and condescension. I mean, a lot of people who come to this denomination are very proud of how knowledgeable we are in our doctrine and how we can speak uh, to different biblical passages and all that. The thing is, if if your knowledge makes you arrogant, you've actually misunderstood the Bible and what God wants for you. And you know, as a guy who uh, studies the Bible for a living, I find the word of God both surprising and sometimes really hard to understand. I, I wrestled with this text a long time. It's hard and I still don't think I've fully got it. And there's not a week that goes by that I, I don't feel ignorant or as if I've just barely scratched the surface of what's here. And I, you know, I've got sermons going back uh, nearly 20 years some of them are so embarrassingly bad, I, I hope they never see the light of day. So let me encourage you, keep it up. Pursue God and his word. Like with John, we, we all start with simple belief, but growth in God and his word, it will pay dividends, but it does require work. So don't see your life merely as you know, event after event that's just random, because it's not. But as being defined by God Himself, which means there's never a moment in which you're not living in light of Him. That is another way of saying there's never a time in your life in which His eyes are not on you, and which He doesn't have your best interest at heart. So we have taken in Jesus's glory. He has made His home in us. He has given us His Spirit, and He is at work in us. So as God has set His heart on us, let's respond. Let's respond and set our hearts on him. As John tells us, that is the mark, or one of the marks of being a Christian. So let's do it. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, your your word is so rich. It's so incredible. Lord, I almost feel like I threw the, the whole kitchen sink today. But your word is like that sometimes. And I thank you for its depth. I thank you for its beauty I thank you that you are the author of history and that you continue to exercise providence over all things, that there's not a moment of our lives that escapes your attention, there's not a moment of our lives that you have let us go, that you are the steadfast and loving God who will endure and patiently walk with his people because you love us. We thank you in Jesus and because of Jesus that we can say all of this. We pray this in his name. Amen.